All right. Well, hello and welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast, Control-Alt-Right-Delete edition. Uh, we produce these as a reward for our Patreon backers who receive early access to each podcast. My name is Melissa Ryan, and I edit Control-Alt-Right-Delete each week. Uh, I want to start. I owe you all an apology. Uh, it's way past time due for a podcast in July. It's been a minute since we've done one of these. But I'll be honest, the back half of June ended up being a lot busier than I anticipated with work and some personal stuff. Uh, but today's interview is going to be worth the wait. Uh, today we are talking to one of my favorite uh, activists on Twitter. Uh, she's known as Socialist Dogmong. Uh, but you, uh, her name is Molly Conger. Uh, she is a tour de force in local activism and journalism in Charlottesville, Virginia. If you know Molly's work nationally, you're likely familiar with her coverage of the Fields trial. Uh, just this week, James Fields was sentenced to life in prison plus 419 years for the murder of Heather Heyer during the Unite the Right rally. Molly was at the courthouse every day covering the trial on her Twitter account and recapped the proceedings in a nightly podcast. Uh, but Molly hasn't stopped there. She can also be found live tweeting literally every public meeting in Charlottesville, Virginia. Her Twitter followers learn what's going on in their city through her consistent and transparent and rather dogged coverage of proceedings. So I am thrilled to have Molly on to talk about today, to talk today about fighting the far right at the local level and what listeners who want to uh, do some activism to combat hate in their own communities can do. Molly, hi. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I know it's been an emotional week with the fields with the field sentencing. Um, but I want to start by asking you to to tell us a little bit about your story, uh, about your background, and how you got started with um, activism. Yeah, so I used to be a normal person. I used to be a, a project manager at a small tech company here in Charlottesville. Um, but in the, around the middle of 2017, I lost my job for totally unrelated reasons. It just I ended up um, not having anything to do around the same time that Nazis invaded my hometown. Um, and I just, I had a lot of questions I couldn't answer. I just, I, you know, hadn't been really involved up to that point, And I didn't understand how this had been allowed to happen to us. And so the way that I went about trying to figure that out was by immersing myself in local government. Um, and were some of the, do you feel that it was a lot of failings in local government that led to, to the rally in Charlottesville? Yes and no. I mean, I think Obviously, the city could have done more to prevent what happened, but I think sort of the, the strange intersection of, of the two halves of what I do, they, they seem like really disparate things, right? Like researching and investigating the far right online and also live tweeting my, you know, zoning hearings for my small town. They seem like opposite things, two things that the same person wouldn't be so deeply invested in. But I, I think what I realized is they're, they're two halves of a whole and that what happened here wasn't it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't happenstance. It was a flare-up of what I, I see as a chronic illness. Um, that you know that white supremacy is so deeply entrenched in government and in our day-to-day -day lives that that was just the cold sore to to the virus that is white supremacy in our culture. And do you get a sense, you know, since we're we're at what two years out from Unite the Right now? Uh, do you get a sense that it has changed uh, the way uh, Charlottesville government and Charlottesville public offices are run? It has changed everything about this city. Um, in a lot of ways for good, I think it has radicalized a lot of normal people. It has uh, gotten a lot of people more engaged in, uh, in politics and in social justice. Um, 
gotten a lot more, especially white people like me, realizing that there is there is a race problem that we are not addressing. There is a, a legacy of racial violence in Charlottesville and everywhere that we have not even begun to reckon with. Um, you know, things. It's so funny. I guess because of what happened here, every every minor flare up, every little you know sort of escalation in tension becomes national news. I yeah. just, it cracked me up recently that. Uh, our city council voted to do away with Thomas Jefferson's birthday as a city holiday, which like, you know, it, in a normal world, a small town that you've never been to stopping, you know, not closing city hall on a holiday you've never heard of for some dead guy. It's not news. It's not news. But it's it's part of the work that's going on here in, in reckoning with that legacy of racial violence that, you know, there are statues of that man everywhere. And he founded the university. And this is, you know, he's a minor deity here. Yeah but that we're not going to continue to close the government to celebrate the birthday of a dead rapist. It seems like too, that the national right just comes back to Charlottesville again and again as a way to sort of keep the outrage machine cranking and going. Um, and I wonder how, what kind of effect that has both on the citizens and again, how, how things are run. I mean, part of it is that it's not over here. There are still trials. There are still, uh, there's ongoing civil litigation. Uh, Signs v. Kessler is the, the civil suit against the organizers of the rally brought by a bunch of people who were harmed. Mm-hmm. That's going to take years to wrap up. We are still dragging through an agonizing discovery process. Like this, that one day here, that like that small window of violence, it's not closed. They yeah. have to keep coming back here for depositions and hearings, and they can't forget because they're being sued and they're, you know, their people are in jail. It's not over. Yeah, and that just has a, a constant impact on the day-to-day, whether you want it to or not. Uh, well, you mentioned trials. Uh, I want to ask specifically about the trial, trial of, of James Fields, just because I feel the way that you covered it was so fascinating to me. You know, you covered it on, on Twitter, uh, live tweeting. You, cut, you did a, a nightly recap podcast, which I, I, I listen to quite frequently. Uh, what was the process of deciding that you needed to cover this trial every day? Um, and how did you decide what mediums to use? So I'd been covering all of the hearings in all of the trials, um, civil and criminal, uh, from from the incident, you know, up up until today. But that was obviously the big one. You know, a lot of people can't name offhand the other people who are prosecuted or the people who are part of these lawsuits. But that was that was the big one. Um, and I think, you know, for me personally, a lot of the work that I do is about sort of the the grinding bureaucracy. It's about the process. It's not about outcomes. It's not about what got voted on or what got enacted. It's about the really examining in a granular way the process of how we are arriving at these these things. And so in this case, what we were arrived at was a conviction. But I think from the outset, everybody, it was was a foregone conclusion. He's going to get convicted. That's that's not the point. It's how we get there and how we talk about it and how, how the victims are represented and how, you know, how he defends himself. And so that process, I think, was really painful for a lot of people. I, you know, I've watched a lot of people in my community suffer terribly for the last two years. And so it was not something that a lot of people felt they could engage in really actively throughout that three-week trial. But it was also, you know, there are people who are affected by that day who don't live here, people who came here to defend this community that didn't have the option of engaging with it, even if they wanted to. And I, I wanted to give, you know, an, an open and honest and you know, as painful as it is, this an intimate look at at how this was being dealt with. Um, and like I said, I'd been covering all of the hearings. Like, you know, I've been engaging in sort of the, the 
grinding minutia of all of these cases. And so this, was, for me, was not different in that respect, but there was a lot more interest in the, the intricacies of this case. Uh, and, you know, the, the national media comes in every now and again for, for this or that. So for things like the Fields trial, you know, they, they flew people in from all over the country and all over the world yeah. to cover this trial. But those aren't people who are accountable to my loved ones. Those aren't people who are accountable to my community, who aren't familiar with my community, who used pictures of wounded victims in their articles, who, you know, softballed this murderous Nazi, who, you know, wrote sympathetic articles about how sad he was in some of the videos. Like, it's, it's sick. And I think that we, we owe those survivors who want to engage in this uh, a story that honors them and is respectful of them. You, you mentioned uh, national coverage and irresponsibility of it. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your editorial process, because one thing I talk to, I've talked to guests on this podcast a lot, it's a lot of conversations, is when you cover white supremacy, when you cover extremism, how do you cover it without amplifying uh, white supremacist ideologies? Um, and I'd love to hear how you determined what to and what not to cover in the trial and how to cover it without giving fields a platform. Gosh, um, you know, in a broader sense, that's a conversation we have all the time, right? Because it's so hard. It's so hard to to get people to pay attention to something that is sort of niche mm-hmm. and say, look over here, this, this is an emergency. This is something we need to be paying attention to without just amplifying that hate and spewing that garbage at people. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a constant struggle. But during the trial, um, you know, there was obviously a lot of really hurtful content. It was, um, you know, they put victims on the stand and had them describe in detail the horrible injuries and recoveries they'd experienced. And I brought that faithfully to the, to the listeners. Um, but at, you know, at the top of every episode, I've included a detailed content warning about exactly the kinds of things that you would encounter if you, yes. if you listen to that specific episode. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a tough balance. Um, and with that trial, it was harder than usual. Although, you know, in, I guess for, for listeners who are not familiar with the, the charges brought against Fields, he was charged by both the state and the federal court system. And so his state charges were pretty straightforward. It was just, did he do this? Did he hurt these people? And the answer was yes. Right. Uh, his motive and sort of the, the, the malice and hatred and racism and Nazi ideology that he held wasn't a, really a key component of that trial, which is maybe surprising to people who didn't follow the coverage of it. Um, so most of what was upsetting in that was just the, the experiences of the victims. There was, I think they only admitted they only admitted two pieces of evidence about um, his sort of pre-existing ideology. It was um, a text to his mother with a picture of Hitler attached. Um, the day before the rally, she texted him to be careful, which is a normal thing a mom might say to you. You know, my mom tells me to be careful before I go to rallies. Same. But he te- he t- texted her back we're not the ones who need to be careful and included a picture of Hitler. And there was a fight over admitting that, but that ended up getting admitted into evidence. Um, and then he'd posted a couple of memes of a car running into a crowd of protesters and that was admitted. Um, so, you know, there was not a lot of violent ideology, just violent action in the state file. Um, the federal charges were hate crime charges. He ended up pleading guilty to those. So there was no trial, but the, um, the change of plea hearing and the sentencing did get into kind of, some of the more horrible things that he thought and had said prior to acting on them. And I actually, to answer your question, 
I don't know. I don't know how to cover that because I still haven't finished writing about the sentencing hearing because it's something I've really struggled with because yeah. it is fucking disgusting. It is disgusting to hear an FBI agent recap from a, a deposition of one of his high school classmates that on a high school trip to Dachau that he skipped along the railroad tracks, that he looked happy like a kid in Disneyland in the place where the people were, were killed. Like, it's awful. It's awful, and I've spent so much time delving into the far right online and in sort of embedding in their, in their online communities that you know, I, I, part of my brain is a little bit broken now because when I see things like that, I have, you know, I have my own reaction to it, but simultaneous to that, not subsequent, simultaneously to my own gut reaction and how gross that is, what I think is exactly how those people will react. Yeah. I know, I know what they will think and feel when they see that content. And that makes it harder to talk about because you don't want to, you don't want to give that to them. It's, I, I think we don't talk enough about the personal cost of, of, of the work that we do. And, and I think you in particular, because you have become uh, targeted in a way that I think most people who um, are active locally and cover local politics will, will just never experience. Um, and, and if you're comfortable, um, I, you know, I, I know particularly you've become targeted by Chris Cantwell, um, AKA the, the crying Nazi is probably how he's most known um, you know, if, if you're comfortable, could you talk about sort of, sort of the impact of that and what it's had on, on your life? Yeah, you know, I think because of what happened here, a, a lot of our local reporters have gotten a taste of that. Um, but a lot of it has, you know, has died down. But because of the sort of the two disparate elements of my work, you know, most of what I do is just live tweet public meetings. You wouldn't think that would, you know, fire up any ire in anybody except, you know, maybe the NIMBYs in my neighborhood who are mad that I uh, make fun of them. <laughs> but um, I think, I don't know, I wonder if in some of their minds, I have just become sort of symbolic of their failure in this town, that I'm the, the person in Charlottesville that they remember and who is constantly pushed to the top of their consciousness. So when they, I don't know, when they're mad at what happened here, when they're mad at the, their defeat in this town, I don't know, I just have become a placeholder for that and a target for that anger um, because I am uh, very popular online with them. Um, you live in a lot of their heads rent-free. The thing with Chris is it's really funny. You know, I'm not sure I've talked about this before, but the reason I started getting really into sort of dissecting the court filings and really digging into the people being sued in my town is because Chris sued my friend. Chris Cantwell was, um, he pepper sprayed my friend Emily Gorsensky on August 11th. And she pressed criminal charges. She filed a, a, a warrant, she filed for a warrant with a magistrate, and he was charged with um, malicious release of gas, which is a felony in Virginia. And in response to that, he filed a lawsuit against her for malicious prosecution, which you would think would get thrown out immediately if there's an open pending criminal case. Because right. Those, those two things can't be concurrent. But you know, so what, what got me interested in really, you know, obviously I'm not a lawyer. What really got me interested in spending this much time with the law was his lawsuit against my friend. Um, so it is, it is funny that he's um, spent so much time targeting me when all I ever did was talk about his frivolous lawsuit. And, and Emily, we should mention, has, has gone through so much herself that she has actually moved. Um, right. She had to leave her wife and her job and her town and move to Germany. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's deeply ironic that in 
2019, a woman has to move to Germany to escape Nazis. Yes. Um, I, I mean, you, you mentioned Emily. I've always been really impressed by the community uh, that has really formed locally around Charlottesville. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that community means to you and uh, how, how you all foster supporting one another? It's amazing. I, I can't say enough how privileged I feel to be accountable to this community, to be able to provide a service that is useful to other activists in my community to help people plug into local government because it's opaque and it's boring and it's hard and I have a lot of spare time. And so to be able to provide a service to this incredibly engaged, active, uh, strong community is, is amazing. Um, you know, I've, I've never, I wouldn't wish this on any other city. What happened to us created this and as beautiful and as amazing as it is, I, I don't want this to be fostered in other communities in response to a terrorist attack. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but I do hope that other communities can come together like this and, and be this present. Um, you know, one of the, one of the examples I like to talk about is our uh, local group called hate free schools. Um, so the week after August 12th in 2017, Orange County, North Carolina banned Confederate symbols in their schools because they looked at what happened here they looked at the, the videos and the images of men marching in the street with swastikas and Confederate flags, and they saw the, the destruction that happened here, and they said, that's, that's not a symbol that we want in our schools. That's hateful, that's violent, that's dangerous, and we're not going to have it anymore. And so if a school district in another state can look at what happened here and do that, why can't our school district? So a group of local moms um, formed the Hate Free School Coalition of, Charles, of Albemarle, and they went to the Albemarle County School Board and they said, look, look what happened right here in our district. We have to protect our kids. There's racial intimidation going on in our schools and we have to protect our kids. And they said no. And they worked with the school board and they worked with the school board and they had meetings and they put together data and they talked to the community and the school board just wouldn't. Um, you know, I went to my first Albemarle County School Board meeting about a year after they started doing that work. So in, in the summer of 2018, um, 10 minutes into the meeting, they canceled it because they were too nervous that the community showed up and they were snapping in support of a mom talking about how her black son was afraid to go to school. They canceled the meeting because they just couldn't hear it. After it had already started. Right. And like one, one school board member was wearing a tie with a Confederate flag on it at that meeting. Oh, like it's, Lord. it's horrific. Um, but we showed up. Like how many people go to your local school board meetings, probably not a lot, probably not a huge engaged community that will wait for hours outside the jail after six people are brutally arrested at a school board meeting. That's not, that's not a normal thing in a community, but we have that here. You know, so the, at the second Elmerall County school board meeting I went to the week after the one that was canceled, six people got arrested. Only five of them managed to make it to jail because one of them had to be taken to the hospital because he was so brutally assaulted by the officer who arrested him. Oh my God. So, you know, what, what's happening here is, is unusual, but our community is responding in a way that is, is really powerful. So that, that actually is a, a great pivot to my next question, which is, you know, a lot of, of my readers and our listeners are already active in their local communities or they want to be, you know, maybe politically, maybe in community activities. But what is your advice for someone who is specifically looking to, to fight hate or fight the far right's influence in their own backyard? Because we know it's happening in communities all across America. I mean, 
obviously I'm a little bit biased towards um, engaging in the most boring parts of your local government. But, you know, I think especially with um, election year coming up, a lot of people are focused on presidential campaigns. And that's good. That's fine. It definitely matters who the president is. It will definitely be better when someone other than Trump is the president. But that senator you knock doors for doesn't care about you. Like even in a best case scenario where that senator really does want what's best for your community and really does represent you, there's a huge distance between what they want and what ends up filtering back down to your neighborhood. You know, we can't wait for the federal government to get its shit together. I don't know if that's even going to happen. You can't build power from the top down. But if you get involved at the hyper-local level, you can make change now. You can make real change for yourself and for your neighbors now. You can get a school policy changed. You can get Confederate symbols banned from two school districts if you just show up and you just fight. Uh, you can change bus routes so that your neighbors can get to work on time without waiting an hour at a transfer station. You know, that sounds small, but that shit matters. That that gives someone else in your community the energy that they need to keep fighting. It gives them a little bit more time in their day that they're not just waiting for a bus. And that builds power from the ground up. You know, things are probably going to get worse. And forming those strong community bonds, having a community that comes together and mobilizes for each other, that will make a difference. You know, when things start to fracture, having that solidarity and the people who know their way around the systems in your community, that, that's going to be a community that doesn't get broken when things get worse. That is excellent advice. Uh, Molly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This is a fantastic interview. Uh, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Socialist Dog Mom. I think if I'd realized I was going to be using that professionally, I, maybe I would have not made a joke, but there we are. And do you have uh, a Patreon page? I do. I have a Patreon at the same at, at Socialist Dog Mom. And, you know, as a communist, I'm not super good at capitalism, so I don't have a lot of perks or extras. It's just a, um, an amazing community of people around the world who like what I do and want to help me keep doing it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that's a wrap on today's Hope Not Hate podcast, Control-Alt-Right-Delete edition. Uh, if you like the work that we're doing, please consider becoming a supporter on our Patreon as well. Our members help make the newsletter and podcasts like this possible. Uh, we will include a link to our Patreon and to uh, Molly's social media in the show notes. Thanks all. Thanks so much. Bye, Molly.